Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I am the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I am very excited because we're going to be talking about a new supplement in the nootropics space, and that is a unique version of a herb called Bacopa. And so today, I'm joined in the studio with Emil Bakar. Emil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucas. So, Emil, maybe... First of all, do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got so fascinated into, I guess, nootropics? Yeah, absolutely. I think it started pretty early in my life. I grew up all over the world and and one of those places was Malaysia. And in Malaysia, there is, a, at least at the time, and I think still a big emphasis on herbal medicine. And you would see it even on billboards. So I remember as a young child seeing these big billboards for Tangat Ali and going into the jungle and and meeting with people and like them showing us certain herbs and how they worked. I remember walking through the jungle one time and someone was chipping off some frankincense off of a tree and lighting it on fire and saying, oh, we use this for inflammation and pain and things like that. So very early on, I think I got really interested in how can you use things from nature to enhance health and think as I got further along, I got more and more interested. And then in high school, I started experimenting with ginkgo biloba because I needed some extra help with studying. And then I ended up going to college for a psychology degree, did a bachelor's of science there. And then halfway through that degree, I realized what I was really interested in was neuroscience. So I switched the direction of my study to more neuroscience. And right around that time, I started reading Reddit posts by Mr. U.R. Saddam, who is the owner of Tropics Depot. And at the time, actually, Serotropic. So at that point... Nootropics Depot didn't exist yet. Serotropic was alive and well, super experimental. And I remember reading about some of the first experiments Paul was doing with Semax and Selank and some of those crazy peptides. And I got even more interested then. And I actually did, I think I even did a presentation on the racetams in one of my classes. And I was working with rats a little bit, doing some studies on them and learning how to handle them. And that kind of made me more interested in the research behind all of this stuff. And then kind of at the end of my study, I realized I was really interested in neuropharmacology. I didn't really want to go into the pharma side. So serotropic seemed like an interesting place to go and that's how I ended up in Arizona at that point, working with, with these supplements. But that, that was the story. And it's always been something that was really fascinating to me because it was all around me. Yeah, incredible, incredible stuff there, Emil. As you mentioned, for those wondering, on the Reddit R Nootropics subreddit, I personally, my username is Loxo55. And if people want to like go back and stalk some of my posts, they'll see that some of my, I used to post like, consistently on that on that reddit forum and i remember seeing mr the username mr you are so dumb so if anyone's wondering what that means emil's referring to paul who and what and do you want to explain paul's position within the company yeah he is the the founder of depot or the parent company centera bioscience under which we do nootropics depot and then also natrium health and then back in the day it was also serotropic that's where everything started so Paul's stance on everything, especially back in the day on the r slash nootropics subreddit, he started as not really being involved in the supplement or nootropics industry at all, but he was taking the supplements himself and he was interested in neuroscience and how all of these things worked in the brain. 
And what he started to realize is that a lot of the stuff on the market was either not of a very high purity, sometimes just flat out fake. So he got together on r slash Nootropics and took a bunch of donations in at the time and then bought supplements and sent them off for analytical testing. And through that, they found that a lot of things weren't actually what they were being claimed that they were. So then Paul wanted to find a better source for some of these things. And that honestly didn't really exist sometimes. So then he stepped in and started Serotropic and then was really rigorous about the analytical testing and making sure that the stuff we were getting from abroad from manufacturers was actually what it claimed to be and testing every batch. And then that idea just escalated and escalated and escalated. And now we have a huge in-house lab. And I remember when I first started working for the company six years ago, I think we had an HPLC, just a single one and a UV Viz, or maybe not even in UV Viz and FTIR at the time. And so we were doing some minor stuff in-house, but sending most of the stuff out. And now that has escalated to, I think we have two UPLCs, two HPLCs, UV Viz, and all sorts of crazy analytical equipment. So now we do a lot of our own testing. That's where he started, what got me interested, and what kept me interested in, in this side. And that's without some of that capability, we would have never been able to make Cognance. The yeah. Extract. yeah. Yeah. For those wondering, Nootropics Depot would have to be the number one, probably the biggest Nootropics reseller or I guess store in, in the US. Is that correct? Like at the moment, probably the biggest in the US? Maybe. Yeah. I I I haven't really compared them. There are some big players. Like, of course, if you then count Now Foods or even Thorin, they're fairly large, but they mostly do supplements. With the Nootropics, I think, yeah, maybe we're we're one of the bigger ones among, of course, maybe Lift Mode and, and New Mind. But yeah, definitely up there. I think in the volume and precision of the work we do and the capabilities like an analytical lab, I think not many people are doing that. So we're pretty unique in that. It's incredible. So obviously today we're here to talk about Cognance, this mm-hmm. version of Bacopa Monieri. Now, just to give my audience a bit of a background story, as a naturopath, the one herb that every single lecturer used to always talk about back at university was Bacopa Monieri for memory enhancement. It was a true nootropic. It, it facilitated better memory performance. It was very neuroprotective, increasing growth factors in the brain. So maybe Emil, did you want to look at how the evolution of this type of Bacopa Monieri came about? And yeah, just tell us the evolution. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Bacopa Monieri in in Ayurvedic practices has been like one of the, the star players. And I think because of that in naturopathy and alternative healthcare, it's, it's really popular too, because they I think a lot of the ideas come from Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine too. And I think in Ayurvedic medicine, Bacopa Monieri is seen as a Rasayana herb. So like a rejuvenating tonic herb and with sattvic quality. So it gives you clarity and purity of mind. So going from that concept, and it seems that Bacopa Monieri originated in India. It's probably not native to India. It's widespread throughout Southeast Asia and other parts of Asia, but it's Bacopa monieri is an aquatic amphibious plant, so it likes to grow in or very close to water. So a lot of areas of India are perfect for this, and especially rice fields. So it's oftentimes intercropped too. So you put the bacopa in after a rice harvest, and it's the perfect growing environment. So then you have this two-season crop. And it seems that this plant was then oftentimes used as a tea dried up and then used for cognitive enhancement. So that is hundreds of years back already. And there's quite a bit of evidence for this. And then you form these concepts and you know what happens in the framework of a lot of this traditional medicine. And then as science became more and more advanced, we started to learn, okay, what actually is in Bacopa Monieri? One of the compounds that was, or two of the compounds that was found very early on, I think in 1963 already, were the bacocytes. And this was bacocyte A and bacocyte B. 
which is a little bit problematic because backside A actually doesn't exist, which is interesting. So the backasides are saponins. So they work like soap, like detergent. And because of that, they can stick together. And when you put them in an HPLC column, it can be hard to separate those. So backaside A is like a mixture of different backasides that co-elute in HPLC. So when they're being analyzed, you see this one compound backaside A. So in 1963, they didn't necessarily have the means to separate them. So for a long time, we had backside A and then backside B. So now we know actually what backaside A is made up of. It's, I think, backaside X, Bacopa saponin, C, backaside 2, and, and then two others. If you look at the Sigma Aldrich reference standard, for example, backaside A actually in brackets has the mix. So if you buy the reference standard from Sigma Aldrich, it's actually a mix of all of those. Interestingly enough, backaside B, we've never been able to figure out what it was. So that might have just been a, another blip that happened and we've never really been able to uncover it. But after we found that at least there are some compounds we can look at, more extracts could be made. So then the story of Bacopa kind of progresses and it goes to the Central Drug Research Institute of India, CDRI. And they realized in the 1970s, there was already some research happening on Bacopa monieri, obviously a long history of human use on it, but they needed an extract that they could standardize so that they could have human clinical studies that were repeatable and of high quality. So they came up with this extract called CDRI-08. And to this day, you can still buy that extract. In Australia, it's called KeenMind. In the US, it's called Synapsa. So this was the first ever Bacopa monieri extract, and a lot of research has been done on that. And through that research, they found that, like you were saying, it can increase neuroplasticity, can increase neurotransmission, and a lot of things that are beneficial to memory and also mood, like relaxation, things like that. Back a little bit to the analysis, the chemical analysis of Bacopa. It was still hard to figure out how to test for backaside A and B. So what they did is they hydrolyzed the backasides and then they acid hydrolyzed the backasides to ebilin lactone, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And ebilin lactone is really easy to test via UV spectrophotometry. So they were actually already making ebilin lactone in order to test for backasides, but they didn't really make the link yet at the time. So then we progress a little bit further, we take Bacopa for a long time, and then we actually came across, or actually when I first started for Nootropics Depot, I came across this study from 2015 that seemed to indicate, okay, the bacocytes actually don't absorb in your gut, and worse yet, they don't go through the blood-brain barrier. So if you actually look at the structure of the bacocytes, they're quite large. They have these sugar groups attached to them. And usually when a compound is really big and it has these sugar groups attached to it, it means it can't absorb properly and it, it definitely can't make it through the blood-brain barrier. But when these sugar compounds hit your gut, the sugar groups can be ripped off and then you end up with aglycones. So this study looked at the aglycone compounds from the bacocytes, which are jujobogenin and pseudojujobogenin. And these can actually absorb in the gut and can make it through the blood-brain barrier. And then those two compounds make five different bacogenins, so bacogenin A1 through A5. And one of those is then ebilin lactone. And ebilin lactone absorbs really well and can make it through the blood-brain barrier. So when I saw this as a 22-year-old fresh out of college, I came across this study. The first thing I wanted to do, of course, was get a hold of Evelyn Lactone. Wow. But at the time, I was a little bit naive. So it was a lot harder than I thought. Yeah. You know, this, is, this is incredible stuff, Emila. This is something that I've always wanted to dive deeper into and understand, like truly understanding the mechanism of action by which how many of these herbs actually work. I know like another example could also be like um, the ginsenicides. They're also saponins found within ginseng and we're starting to learn that it's their transformation and metabolism through the microbiome eliciting its effects. And 
this is something I really want to like highlight and illustrate to, to my audience is we really don't understand a lot about how many of these herbs work, but what we are slowly uncovering now is, wow, a lot of these are actually interacting with the microbiome and then making their way through the blood-brain barrier. So let's continue discussing this incredible compound, ebilin lactone. What was so unique about this compound found within Bacopa monieri? So the one really interesting thing to me at the time, the first one actually, which might be surprising to some of the people who already know what ebilin lactone does, was not the 5-HD2A effects. It was the muscarinic M1 effects. So obviously the 5-HD2A effects have been the talk of the town a little bit with this extract and for good reason. But at the time, I was really interested in muscarinic M1 receptors because And we looked at this a lot in my neuroscience courses too. When you want to study if something is a cognitive enhancer and specifically if something enhances memory, you do a scopolamine test sometimes. So you can administer a rat or even a human scopolamine because it's fairly safe if dosed by a professional. Definitely don't go taking scopolamine. It can make you very delirious and hallucinate. It's quite unpleasant. But in lower doses and in higher doses, it blocks the muscarinic M1 receptor. And the muscarinic M1 receptor is really important for memory encoding. So if you block it, but you can come that muscarinic M1 blockade with racetam or something or some of these plant compounds, then it can be an indication, okay, this might be a memory enhancing compound. So then I thought, why not just activate the muscarinic M1 receptor? But it turns out it's actually really hard to find selective muscarinic M1 agonists. So, of course, you have one in the Amanita muscaria mushroom. That's where the name muscarinic comes from, too, because there's a compound in that mushroom called muscarin. But it's quite toxic. And part of the reason is because it is a non-selective muscarinic acetylcholine agonist so it acts on all i believe there are five m1 through m5 and some of them really increase salivation and sweating and metabolic rate it can be quite nasty in higher doses but the m1 receptor doesn't necessarily have a lot of these side effects associated with it and it's really important for cognitive function so i wanted to find the selective muscarinic M1 agonist, and it just doesn't really exist. And then I came across Evelyn lactone <laughs> and it was selective, according to the study, a selective M1 agonist, or actually later I found that a positive allosteric modulator. So that's kind of one of the first things. Amazing. Amazing. And we'll get, we'll get stuck into the M1 in more detail, but obviously like I want to backtrack and go into the 5-HD2A, the tickler. Yes. Cognance was, was, it's got this name, the tickler. So mm-hmm. did you want to frame that? Like why is the 5-HD2A serotonin receptor so prominent and prolific in the psychedelic space? What is that receptor and, and what, is it, what, are, what, what functions does it serve? Yeah, so if you look at the psychedelic response, most of it is coming through the 5-HD2A receptor. So if you activate the 5-HD2A receptor, a lot of neuronal excitation happens, especially in visual cortexes and in the neocortex, a lot of the things that process incoming information. So when you activate it and you activate it to a high degree, you can also have much more activity happening in the visual cortex. And this leads to some of the the visual effects of psychedelics. But more interestingly, the 5-HD2A agonism can increase cognitive function because it can also enhance the processing of all of that incoming data that's coming in. And For the whole 5-HT2A story becoming more popular, you have to look at microdosing. And I think before that, you also have to go back and see history of psychedelics. And if you look at people like Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, he was using it also in lower doses, it seemed, for cognitive enhancement. So this concept has been around a long time. Then I believe in the last 10 years, it really became popular. James Fadiman is a really big proponent of microdosing and did a lot of the microdosing research. And they discovered that maybe if you just tickle the 5-HC2A receptor instead of fully activating it and causing this big experience, then maybe you can have more 
controlled cognitive enhancement, allowing you to process the world around you a little bit more, but not having this, this big experience and then being able to replicate that more and more often. And then James Fadiman, I think, was one of the people that really made it popular. I think he wrote a book about it. And then people like Paul Stamatz started picking it up and started combining it with other mushrooms like lion's mane. And then actually the microdosing went a little bit more from LSD to psilocybin, which is a little bit easier to get a hold of for most people, maybe a little bit safer to certain degrees. So I think that's where the interest in the 5-HT2A receptor came from, especially microdosing became a big thing. People were writing about on Vice and oh, everyone in Silicon Valley is microdosing and that's why the computers are so great and all of this stuff. So I think it's definitely blown completely out of proportion, but there definitely is some truth to it. And the 5-HT2A receptors are very important for cognitive function and in terms of serotonin receptors, they are one of the most expressed serotonin receptors throughout the cortex, where a lot of this cognitive processing is happening, and they act in an excitatory manner. So one really interesting thing about the 5-HD2A receptor is that when you activate it, you get releases of glutamate. And glutamate is one of the main excitatory neurotransmitters in the brain and is really important for memory encoding. For neuroplasticity, without glutamate, there's basically no neuroplasticity, but it is a bit of a, a delicate balance. You don't want too much glutamate because then you can have things like excitotoxicity. So administering strong glutamatergic agonists and things like that is maybe not always the best idea, but looking at it through the lens of 5-HD2A and how it can increase the release of glutamate in certain key areas of the brain that are related to cognitive function that I think makes 5-HD2A activation really interesting and why microdosing is so interesting. Yeah, really, really, really well explained there, Emil. As far as Bacopa and your version, your standardized extract of Bacopa, specifically making it a higher, higher yield of this ebilin lactone, maybe did you want to explain to my audience like what was the initial intention for doing this? Was it specifically for, for memory enhancement, like a true nootropic? Or did you have some other hopes and aspirations in mind? So basically, when I first found the study about Eblin lactone, I really had high hopes for it as a cognitive enhancer, mostly because Bacopa at the time and still was one of the best natural nootropics you could get your hands on for memory. So I really wanted a memory enhancer. But then the more I read about 5-HT2A, we also thought, okay, it'd be a really interesting thing for mood, especially because that became a big topic of discussion around 5-HT2A. So in the beginning, I first was still in that serotropic mindset of we can maybe do this synthetically. So I was looking around, looking for a synthetic source. Turns out that's really difficult to make Evelyn lactone synthetically. So I think during that time where I shelved it away for a few years, that's really when microdosing hit the mainstream. And that's when we thought, okay, this can also be more interesting for mood, perhaps. So that was kind of like going into it. It was a pure nootropic and a mood enhancer too. So also as part of this, Emil, I was just sort of thinking around some other synergistic nootropics that would actually help to facilitate Cognance's or this Bacopa's memory enhancing effect. I'd imagine adding in a, a choline precursor, maybe my personal favorites, CDP choline or citicoline. Were there other compounds that you guys maybe tested out in conjunction with Cognance or that you hy hypothesize might synergize when we were first thinking about cognance it just it didn't exist for a really long time so we didn't really do that once we had it we definitely tested it out with a bunch of different things i personally don't really respond that well to choline sources so for some reason when i take cdp choline or alpha gpc i get this kind of depressed mood effect which some people seem to get I did find a really interesting study, though, on the M1 muscarinic acetylcholine receptor recently that actually, let me reframe it for one second. The reason why I think 
me and some other people get this depressed mood effect from choline sources is because choline is a direct agonist at the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Okay. And this is a, a really kind of famous target for cognitive enhancement. It's something that nicotine, for example, the axon, I think things like GTS-21 and a few other things, they act directly on that receptor. When I take things that act directly on alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine, I get this depressed mood. And when I take choline sources, I get this depressed mood. The interesting thing about M1 muscarinic acetylcholine agonism is that it actually suppresses the activity of alpha-7, but it still means all of the cognition-enhancing aspects. So it doesn't seem to decrease cognition through that. But I think, and I haven't actually tried the combination yet, but because I have been on Cognance for a while, I would be interested in retrying some of these choline sources to see if I still respond negatively to it. Because my response might be changed a little bit too, which maybe also formulating a theory that some of us who are having issues with it maybe have low muscarinic M1 activity. And something like Cognance could maybe reverse that. But that's a bit of a tangent. In terms of things we combined with it, we find that things that enhance dopaminergic tone work really well with it. So when we combine it, for example, with Subroxy, which is a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, we find that the focus enhancing effects go up quite a bit. So Subroxy by itself is great. Cognance by itself is great, but the two together really have a nice synergy. The focus from Subroxy can be a little bit like one-dimensional, a little bit of that almost tunnel focus. And I think the Cognance adds this degree of cognitive flexibility to the mix, which is really nice for that focus-enhancing effect. We also found that with Vignatex, which is a, contains a compound which is a fairly potent monoamine oxidase B inhibitor, when we combined that with Cognance, and of course, when you inhibit monoamine oxidase B, dopamine levels also go up and norepinephrine levels go up. When you combine that with Cognance, the effects are also much more focus enhancing and a little bit more mood enhancing. And on Reddit, this has been a bit of a favorite combination. So first it was Subroxy and Cognance, and then later it seemed people really liked the Vignatex and Cognance combination. Now, what other things did we combine? We've combined a lot of things with it <laughs> at this point. Saffron is a nice one. So saffron has that NMDA antagonist effect, which together with the 5-HT2A effects is really nice for mood. It also enhances serotonin. And this is a really interesting thing that we haven't really touched on yet with ebilin lactone, but it's not necessarily activating the receptor the 5-HC2A receptor. And this is where the tickler name also came from. It's actually yeah. making the receptor more sensitive. So instead of directly activating it, if there is serotonin in the vicinity of the 5-HC2A receptor and it happens to bind to the 5-HC2A receptor, then the response will be of a greater magnitude when ebilin lactone is present. So wow. when you just take ebilin lactone and let's say in a crazy world you had no serotonin floating around then nothing would happen but so it's just making it more sensitive so then when you take something like saffron which increases serotonin levels a little bit you can actually increase this 5-HC2A response a little bit more because you're kind of fine-tuning it for that Here's a quick little message to all men listening in to today's show. Do you want to double your energy levels, boost motivation and increase your focus? If so, you may be interested in my epic men's energy program I've recently launched called Limitless. Now, Limitless is an exclusive 12-week program for men who want to go from feeling tired, unmotivated, or burnt out to highly energetic, driven, and focused. Within the program, I will analyze your own unique biology and lay out a fully personalized health protocol so that you can finally unlock peak physical and cognitive performance. Over the 12 weeks, you will have direct access to me to ensure your results, as well as the chance to join me live twice a week to ask me anything relating to health protocols and discover cutting-edge men's health info to keep you at the top of your game. 
Now, spots in this program are extremely limited. So if you're interested in finding out more, make sure you go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash limitless program to reserve the next available call to see if you're a good fit. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash limitless program. You'll also find this link in my bio on my Instagram profile and also my YouTube channel. Just a heads up for my audience listening in, if you guys want to actually purchase Cognance and even this Subroxy that Emil's mentioned, which is a natural dopamine reuptake inhibitor, that will be linked in the podcast show notes. And there's also a discount code Ergogenic10 if you guys want to actually apply that and experiment with some of these compounds. Just thought I'd throw that out there. And then also just going back to the M1 receptor, Emil. Mm-hmm. So does nicotine not act on the muscarinic 1 receptor at all? Or is it different? Oh, that's actually a good question. I haven't looked into the binding affinities in a while. I believe it's mostly acting on the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. That's also where the name comes from. It's literally from nicotine. So I think it is more selective for them. I'm not sure if it's having a direct effect on the M1 muscarinic, but there is some interplay between alpha-7 and the M1 muscarinic. Yeah, that's a really, so this, this point you mentioned around the excess acetylcholine or excessive choline precursors eliciting a bit of a, like a depressive or a low mood state. This is something that I have heard time and time again in the nootropic space. And this is something that also my older brother suffers from no matter what dose of any choline precursor, CDP choline, alpha GPC, choline bitartrate all of these ones elicit a bit of a low mood effect. So this is a really important point, I guess, for those listening in. If you do use a nootropic stack or like a generic stack, just please pay attention to the dose of the choline. Plus then if you're consuming like four eggs a day, like I know a lot of people do, you're going to run into excess acetylcholine. Yeah, that's definitely something to be aware of. And it's something for me, it really starts to sneak up on me. So I don't notice it the first day. The, the first dose I don't with choline precursors, at least. With things that directly act on alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine, I notice it immediately. But it can really take some time to build up. And when I take low doses of alpha-GPC, like 150 milligrams or half the dose of cognizant CDP choline, then... I don't have the issue immediately. It takes three weeks. But then after three weeks, I start noticing, hey, something is definitely off. And then when I stop the alpha GPC or CDP choline, it goes away. So it is kind of... The other part of that is the the ridiculously long half-life CDP choline. I think it's like 55 55 hours. Yeah, it's pretty long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's an endogenous compound too, which is interesting, which is probably why the half-life is also so long because mm. it's constantly being generated in your brain too. Mm. Interesting, interesting. So going back to Ebelin lactone cognates, what are some of the applications that you think this product could be useful for? What sort of markets you think it's going to be good for like enhancing creativity or for the esports gaming market, what are the major applications do you think? Yeah, it's it's hard to say exactly what the application is because it is pretty versatile. I just take it as a daily thing these days. I have for the last two months now. And for example, before getting onto this podcast, I took some because it does help me be a little bit maybe more confident cognitive flexibility, which allows me to kind of pull ideas from different parts of my brain and put them together into some logical speech. So I think for verbal fluency, it's an interesting one. And that's, I think, a concept that comes up oftentimes in the nootropic sphere too, is that idea of the silver tongue, the verbal fluency. It really helps me with that. I think for me, it is a really good one for mood. And we've heard this from a lot of our customers too. And privately through some messages, we've heard from people that they've tried everything for mood and Cognance was the only thing that worked. 
And that's quite interesting. I think for the esports thing, we do actually have a guy on our team who's really into all of that stuff. So I'll have to ask him if he's ever tried it for gaming. Because he also likes a lot of the visual acuity stuff. And because 5HT2A is important for the processing of incoming visual information, I can imagine that activating it a little bit or increasing the 5HT2A activity could make it so that you're taking in more visual information while you're gaming, which I think is an important thing within esports. But then also, I think just in normal sports, that could be quite handy, especially with fast moving sports where you really need a lot of coordination. It could maybe be interesting in that sense. But I think the biggest markets will just be for like a natural nootropic, really just a, like you were saying earlier, like a pure nootropic and then a mood enhancer. And I do really think the creativity aspect comes into play a lot with Cognance. And there are definitely some things that help with creativity and 5-HC2A agonism is not the only thing that enhances creativity. You also, dopamine D2, for example, is really important for creativity. But I think 5-HC2A allows us a little bit more cognitive flexibility. I recently was listening to a little thing on YouTube by David Nutt, which I think you had him on your podcast, right? Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah, and he was actually explaining that 5-HC2A agonism increases cognitive flexibility and that that is a really important thing for some of the mood enhancing effects for some of the psychedelics. So I think that's an important aspect of it too. Do we also potentially suspect that I know normal, like just a normal Bacopa Monieri, like tea, for example, or I, I do remember or do recall it having some affinity to the GABAergic system, upregulating GABAergic GABA receptors, I think it was, or reversing diazepam-induced dependence or something like that. Okay, so I guess we haven't really talked about how we actually made this extract. We actually worked together with an Australian company and they developed, helped us develop the method that we patented. So we take Bacopa and we extract for the bacocytes. We get to 50% bacocytes, so really high concentration. And then we take those bacocytes and we put them through a hydrolysis process, which basically rips the sugar groups off of the bacocytes. And then we end up with jujobogenin and pseudojujobogenin. First time we made it, we ended up with a lot of jujobogenin and pseudojujobogenin. And the second step, the acid hydrolysis, which is supposed to take those and turn it into ebilin lactone, wasn't complete. So they sent us a sample of this. And when we tried it, it just felt like a stronger bacopa. So it was really relaxing and had that GABAergic effect. And that was actually something we were hoping to get rid of with Cognance. So we thought maybe if we bypass some of that and we end up with ebilin lactone, it doesn't seem to have big affinity. Then maybe we can bypass the sleepy effects, the lethargy effects that some people get. But in that first extract, it was almost a little bit more pronounced. And then after some analytical testing, we discovered, oh, okay, there is a lot of pseudojujobogenin and jujobogenin in here, and those are clearly GABAergic. So then a few months later, we got another batch in that was more completely acid hydrolyzed. And now we had a really high concentration of ebilin lactone. And now it was unrecognizable. Like it didn't really feel like Bacopa anymore. It didn't have that GABAergic effect. It didn't have the lethargy effect. So I think to answer your question there, we scrubbed out some of that GABAergic effects and we end up with the more pure 5-HD2A and muscarinic M1, which I think is really beneficial for a lot of people. But I do think if you're using Bacopa Monieri as a thing for relaxation and a calming thing, then Cognance maybe actually isn't the best thing. And you might want to actually just go for a more generic Bacopa Monieri extract. But if you don't want those GABAergic effects, then having something that bypasses all of that is interesting. And that's why one of the aspects that we really liked about Cognance and tried to really develop a lot. Interesting. And what about establishing dosage regimes? Like how did you guys go about converting rat doses to, to human doses? Like how did that all 
come about? Yeah, that's honestly a little bit clunky oftentimes. Like it, it's pretty easy to do. You take the milligram per kilogram dose of a rat, for example, you divide it by 6.2. Now you have the human equivalent. And then we take a, a generic 75 kilogram human and we take the converted dose and then we end up with a dose there. But then we do a lot of beta testing too. That's where we really get our dosage from. You can do that as much as possible. You don't know what these rats are actually feeling. You can't really go, hey, are you feeling relaxed? Or are you feeling a little bit on edge right now? It's quite hard to do. Of course, if you have them in elevated plus mazes and stuff like that, you can you can see how they're reacting, but it's, it's a lot harder. So we just tried it out a lot. And we also took a bit of a logical approach. Like, for example, if we have our 24% bacocide extract and we're dosing that at 300 milligrams, then we're getting 72 milligrams of bacocides. Now, if you consider that the conversion in your gut, because this process, by the way, is all happening in your gut too. So similar to the ginsenosides and, for example, with that extract GS154, which they're taking the ginsenosides and they're making the metabolites through enzymatic fermentation. Here we're doing the same, but mimicking the acid hydrolysis that takes place in the gut. So if we consider that when we take Bacopa, we're making these compounds anyways. If we then consider that from those 72 milligrams of bacocytes, the conversion is 100%, and we end up with jujobogenin and pseudojujobogenin, and then it's again 100%, to all five of the bacogenins and they're evenly spread, then yeah, maybe we're looking at about a dose of 10 milligrams ebilin lactone. And that's actually what we landed at too. So during that 100% perfect metabolism happening, which isn't happening by the way, but if it were to happen, then we had another data point of, okay, maybe that's where we want to land with our dosing. And then when we actually tried it in person, we realized for most people, 10 milligrams of ebilin lactone is going to be perfect. For other people, maybe slightly larger people like myself, we might need a higher dose or you just prefer a higher dose. So I think we recommend 100, but we go between 100 and 200 milligrams. I personally take 200 milligrams after some extensive testing. I realized that was the best dose for me. But that's how we came up with the dose. And then later on in the process, we're also going to do some in vitro studies and maybe some pharmacokinetic studies, but that takes a lot of effort and money. And yeah, so we wanted to get it out because people were knocking down our doors for it yeah. now out in the world. Yeah, There's a lot of interpolation, extrapolation, and the fact that you guys have just pioneered this up until this point now, it's it's extremely impressive. And and hats off to you guys for, for, for exploring this because this is the level of detail we need to like really take the take botanical compounds and herbal extracts to another level. And the fact that you guys are pioneering all this, it's, it's really incredible stuff. I've always been interested in, in learning about the active constituents. I'm, I'm now on the hunt for the next L-theanine. What's the, what are the precursors and the metabolites of L-theanine? Are there things that can in, enhance the effects what happens if we add a methyl group to like tyrosine or things like that i love i love to explore that as well yeah yeah we've done a lot of that too of course we we've had a bunch of things on paper what happens if we acetylate this it's been done already like n-acetylcysteine we have played around with n-acetyl-l-theanine i don't think it ever really ended up working out, but I'm not totally sure why, but we've definitely played around here and there and drastic differences. If you take L-tyrosine and you acetylate it, you get a very different effects profile. So there's a lot of small modifications that can be made. A lot of those modifications though are unnatural in a sense, which I think is still interesting. But then I also think it's interesting that Ebilin lactone is a naturally occurring compound and the process to getting ebilin lactone from the bacocytes is something that happens naturally. And I think looking at that a little bit more is something that's really interesting to me. We see it, of course, with GS154, and that is a really effective extract when you just take the metabolites. And there's a lot of other plants that might benefit from it. Or there's even plants that 
if you take them raw, the compounds just aren't in there yet, which is something I've started to explore. So for example, if you take raw maca, there are no macamides yet because the macamides are actually formed during the drying and a similar process to making the ebulin lactone happens. It actually, there's a hydrolysis process happening, which takes some of the compounds already existing within maca and it hydrolyzes those and it forms amides. You see the same thing in saffron, for example, just undried saffron, I believe doesn't contain saffronal. The saffronal is formed during the drying stage. And you see it in vanilla pods too, for example, if you just take a raw green vanilla pod off a tree, it doesn't smell like vanilla because there's no vanillin in it yet. You have to cure it and age it and ferment it a little bit and dry it and then keep doing it over and over and over. And then boom, all of a sudden you have vanillin. So we've been doing a lot of this processing already for a really long time with, with foods, with perfume ingredients. And I don't think we've done it a whole lot yet with botanicals, except maybe things like kombucha, of course, is taking some of the polyphenols in tea and fermenting them and making metabolites. And you see the same thing in things like kimchi or even sauerkraut. You're taking some of those glucosinolate compounds that are in the cabbage and you're transforming them through fermentation. So some of it is already happening within foods unknowingly, but I think there's a lot of untapped potential into mimicking some of these processes and doing it outside of the human body and doing it in a more stronger standardization, like with Epilin. Yeah, it's incredible. I was just thinking about some of the already well-known like herbal extracts that contain alkaloids that we're, we're familiar with. Like, for example, bean is an alkaloid, which I'm sure, I don't know, met just it just excites me so much to know that there's so much out there that we still haven't even really explored with some of these herbal extracts like i'd imagine you guys probably have a huge pipeline of different botanicals that you're like oh we need to look into this we need to look into this yeah yeah we have a call every monday a big meeting and sometimes it can go for five hours where all we do is just discuss new products so that's happening every single week so we wow. have plenty of ideas. Yeah. I wish I wish I was I wish I was a part of that. I'd love to in some way contribute because I've got my own my Excel sheet is over 2400 compounds long myself now. Wow. So that's a lot. <laughs> the the one that the one that's really piqued my interest recently is N-methylglutamine as a precursor to L-theanine or something. I think it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah it makes sense because L-theanine actually is a, a glutamate derivative. So yeah, I'd, I'd be curious. Does that have a name yet? N-methylglutamine? I feel like it might. Is it like also known as, something? Also known as GMA, which is gamma glutamyl methylamide or N-methylglutamine, or I think it's methionine, methionine or something like that. I don't okay. know. There's lots of synonyms. You have to check on Sigmaldrich or like these weird databases. Okay. So what do you think going with a precursor, you think maybe similar to L-citrulline enhancing arginine levels more? Do you think yeah, like well, in a way like that? I'm pretty sure there was a head-to-head study in terms of assessing hypotensive properties. And I think N-methylglutamine okay. had a more potent hypotensive action than theanine. So it's not That's turning like- into L-theanine. It's having its own effects. I think so. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. We'll we'll have to explore this off off air off off podcast. Yeah. <laughs> There's tons. There's that's just one, but there there are many. There are many in my in my toolkit. Anyway, so let's we'll go back to so cognates. We pretty much you've you've described the history, the mechanisms of action, <clears throat> how you guys actually synthesize the put together the actual formula. You've also outlined the key dosages in detail, like rough dosages, estimates. Was there anything else maybe you thought would be worthwhile mentioning around cognance? You mentioned maybe some in vitro studies in the future. Human studies are probably years away. Yeah, maybe, but maybe not. So the company we worked with in Australia, who is also on the patent with us, they expressed some interest in maybe doing some studies, I think, at the University of 
New South Wales, if, if that's correct, I'm not sure. But it seems like they have already done some human studies, some like pharmacokinetic studies, and also some in vitro studies. So we're working together with them and seeing if that's going to be feasible to do in the next few years. And, and hopefully we'll have that, that data at some point. It's really expensive to do these kind of studies. So that's something that is a bit of a, a hurdle to, to get over. And it's also difficult to organize them and make sure it's of a high quality. So for example, it's easy to do a study with five people. And you see this a lot. You see this a lot with like trademarked and patented ingredients or certain formulations where they recruited five people, which is probably their friends and like their family members or something, and then gave them all of this extract. And then, yeah, maybe it did something, but the results are maybe inconclusive because N equals five. So the, the statistical analysis being run on that is not really going to return anything worthwhile. So then how many people do we need? Do we need, when does it become really significant? Do we need 10 people? Do we need 50 people? Do we need 500 people? Maybe a thousand. And then it starts getting more and more complex. So we're kind of navigating that space. It's quite new to us, but I think in the future, we'll definitely have some very interesting data on more of the binding affinities and maybe how it's being metabolized in humans and the uptake of it. And maybe even some, low level like self-report studies so that's something that can be done fairly easily of course how reliable that is not totally sure but we could use for example the ham d scale that's also being used in pharma research on mood enhancers and then for memory i'm actually not sure what the the official test self-report test is so we'll have to figure that out yeah, it's, it's definitely exciting stuff. I was just thinking about in the future, Emil, we'll have to get you back on. I'd love to get you back on the podcast to talk about some of the other product lines that have just recently been released. I don't know what sort of exact involvement you've had in the like the tetrahydro hanokiol and all of the new ingredients. Are you still facilitating the release for those as well? Yeah, so basically on these calls, we all collaborate together and we come up with these products. And tetrahydromagnolol actually was one that when I first joined the company, it was Evelyn Lactone and tetrahydromagnolol that really caught my attention. Tetrahydromagnolol because of its E2 receptor affinity. So there's not a whole lot of things out in nature that are legal in all countries are selective CB2 agonists. And tetrahydromagnol was. So this was another thing I tried to get synthetically at the time. Completely impossible. Some of these natural occurring compounds are really hard to synthesize. So then I think about a year ago, we finally got a source for it. And then it took a long time to develop a relationship with them and get a production batch. But basically for that one, we extracted magnolol from the actual bark of the tree and then hydrogenated it by reacting it with molecular hydrogen. So it's similar in that cognans evelyn lactone sense where tetrahydromagnolol is formed in the human body due to hydrogenation reactions being carried out by enzymes. And we just mimic that process outside of the human body and we can end up with a higher concentration and a more consistent concentration of tetrahydromagnolol. And then dihydrohonokiol B is another one that is made from honokiol, which is also in magnolia bark. And it's also done through hydrogenation. It's also something that happens in the human body. So we're also looking at coming out with that one in the future. So that one is more of the GABAergic side, tetrahydromagnolol more on the cannabinergic side. So definitely some exciting stuff there. But in terms of my involvement, my direct title at the company is the product specialist lead. So basically all new products pass through me at some point and quite literally pass through me because I basically take everything that we release before we release it. So both Paul and I do that. So last year we were very busy. We beta tested 54 new things. And then some of them don't really make the cut, but most of them do make the cut after we tweak it. But that's how we also set the dosages. So Paul and I are really like hands-on with it. Everything that we're releasing, we want to test on ourselves, make sure that 
at least they're safe for the most part and that we know what the effects are and we can set proper dosages and we're not just relying on translating human to animal studies and things like that. Wow. You you, you both have, in my opinion, if I could quit my job now, I would do exactly what you're doing now. It sounds like... (laughs) It sounds I'm I'm the biggest nerd and I'm just I just love this sort of stuff. But it, it honestly it sounds like so much fun. I wish I was mm-hmm. doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Sometimes it's a little bit scary when you know no one's ever taken something and you're the first person to take it. We we've we've been there a few times and then yeah. We we haven't been releasing those things on Nootropics Depot, but that was more in the Serotropic days. But yeah, it's it's definitely an exciting thing to do. I think I actually felt like I was the very first person to try 10-MEO Harmelon. I don't know if you're familiar with 10-methoxy-Harmelon. Oh, okay. No. I think I was I think I was the first person in Australia to ever try that. I won't I won't talk about it on this podcast, but I I also had another another question around just I know this is a bit off topic, but in relation to ashwagandha and I'm sure you've probably had a million people message you about the anhedonic anhedonia that's elicited from ashwagandha the theory my theory was the the serotonin 1a desensitization that occurs through ashwagandha do you guys have any theories hypothesis or plans to release a product that can help to resensitize that 1a receptor yeah that's interesting and the 5-HT2A receptor and the 5-HT1A receptor also work together. So maybe something like Cognans could even help in that scenario. But it also seems to be a little bit tricky. So for example, for me, I've ashwagandha was the first thing I ever took like 10 years ago. And for the last 10 years, I've been taking it consistently and I've never had this anhedonia response. And I know a lot of other people haven't had this anhedonia response. So it also seems like similar with the choline thing, where some people have amazing responses to choline, and I get that anhedonic response to that. We'll have to look into it a little bit further. I'm, I'm not sure yet. I think the 5-HC1A receptor downregulation makes a lot of sense on paper that that would be causing anhedonia. You see it in cases of depression. You see... Uh, 5-HT2-1A and 2A receptor function actually or density are a little bit out of whack. So I could certainly see that ashwagandha for some people can definitely be problematic there. But in terms of scrubbing that out, I think that would be a little bit hard because almost all of the withanolides seem to have an effect there. And I don't think they've really isolated exactly which one it is. But yeah, I I do think some of the withanolides also glycosides. So maybe there is some hydrogenation or hydrolysis that can happen there, and maybe we can make some different extracts. Of course, in Ayurvedic practices and in KSM sixty six, they use milk as the extraction solvent. Maybe that does something. Maybe the the complex that is made with some of the milk proteins maybe maybe that helps but yeah i'm not totally sure there but that would be a nice thing to crack because the effects of ashwagandha besides that can be really could also be the cortisol that would be my main guess is that the the anhedonia is coming from low cortisol and we see it happening with tangat ali a few times too now so cortisol exists on a bell curve when you're down here you like very low cortisol you have low motivation you can get into that anhedonia space and then as you go up the bell curve and you're kind of like here that's when your motivation is at its peak and pretty much everything is functioning well but then you start falling off that bell curve as cortisol levels go up and then you come up with the same effects that you have with really low cortisol. So the real trick is balancing those cortisol levels. And I do actually find that if you have some of those demotivational effects, stopping ashwagandha is good because maybe you just don't need that cortisol reduction. If there is nothing stressful going on in your life, then maybe you actually need a little bit more of that cortisol to to get moving and motivated. And I find when I've had cases where I do maybe get a little bit more in that like almost lazy mode 
with ashwagandha. If I take ginseng with it, it gets reversed. And the interesting thing about the ginsenocytes are that they can directly bind to the corticosteroid receptors and basically mimic the function of cortisol. So they bind really strongly to the corticosteroid receptors. And when they bind, cortisol actually can't displace it. So it acts as a block. And the effect that the ginsenocytes have on the corticosteroid receptors are a lot lower than cortisol. So in that sense, when you're at the bottom of the bell curve, it can get you back up top. But if you're down here, it can get you back up top too. So it can kind of work as an adaptogen in a sense then. And I think combining ashwagandha with Panax ginseng for some people can then help overcome that maybe cortisol driven anhedonia effect. But of course, that's then completely taking 5-HT1A out of the question. And maybe it's actually a combination of the two. Yeah, yeah. We could, we could talk forever about the, the theories and, and, and the receptors. On Honestly, I've, I've really, really enjoyed having you on the podcast, Emil. And I, I can definitely see you coming back on to talk about some of the other products in the pipeline. Some of the, maybe we can talk about you know, neurotransmitters in, in greater detail, some of the receptors, because it's great to... Finally, talk to someone else who is also on the same sort of wavelength with understanding and things like that. Emil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, for those listening in, if you do want to purchase any product from Nootropics Depot, you can use the link down below in the podcast show notes and use the discount code ergogenic10. That will give you 10% off site-wide. Emil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.